Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read together the first six verses. Again, give careful attention. This is the holy word of a holy God. Mark chapter 6. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about, and he went about among the villages teaching. Amen. This is God's holy word. Have you ever gone home to find things not quite how you left them? It's a different stage in America than in an Irish culture. I live in a land where you are born in a town, you live in a town, and you die in a town. And really you see no change as you come and as you go day to day. But there are times, even in my own experience, that I've gone back to that little town of Macrafelt after many years, and things are not just quite as how I left them. No one knows who I am. I was a little boy who was the farmer's son for many years, and you return, and who are you? Our text this morning finds Jesus returning to his hometown. He returns here to Nazareth. He's going home again. Our Lord's return to his hometown doesn't quite go how we might expect it to. After all, Jesus, up until this point, is something of a celebrity. He's been going around the countryside, preaching and teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and controlling the very force of nature in that storm on the lake. He's proven that indeed there is something very special and very different about him. But of course, the last time Jesus was in Nazareth, and the account that we read off in Luke 4, things also didn't quite go all that well for him either. In that service that he preached from Isaiah chapter 61, Christ proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. What did the people do? If it was a Sunday school time, I would throw that question out and wait for an answer. But I'm sure you know that they tried to kill him. They tried to grab him and throw him over a cliff. And the Bible tells us that Christ got away. And he left that place. He left Nazareth, his hometown, and he preached in other places in Galilee and throughout that land. And now, sometime later, he returns to the very place, the very place where he was cruelly rejected, and he wants to bring them again the message of the gospel. What grace. If we were only to think upon that part this morning, we would have enough to encourage our hearts for the rest of this day and indeed the rest of the week. It's an amazing fact indeed that God gives us a Sabbath day to come and to worship him. And even more an opportunity we get to do it week after week after week as he spares us. God indeed is a good and gracious God. And here we are this morning, 
Seven days after meeting last Lord's Day, and we come again to worship our great God. What grace God bestows upon his people. And Christ here in this passage is doing the very same thing. He's going back from where they tried to kill him. When he arrives, as we read in verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Notice that Mark does not make any reference of any fanfare, of a great crowd, of many people coming to see Christ. Trust me, when you go home to your hometown, people talk. People know exactly when you show up. When I turn up, normally it's my aunts and uncles that start ringing the door and, oh, you're home. How did you know? Well, we heard it. Christ didn't show up and no one knew that he was there. No, they knew and they stayed away. It seems as if the crowd and the people in those days ignored him. And yet they could only ignore him for so long. Because in verse 2 we read, And on the Sabbath day he began to teach in the synagogue. Christ went where everyone was. They ignored him until that Sabbath day. And this morning I want us to consider the Lord's visit to Nazareth. What happened in these six verses are somewhat difficult to understand. And yet they're difficult because they come to us as it were like a two by four right between the eyeballs. What happened in these six verses has something to say to those of us who are believers. In fact, it has a lot to say to us who are believers. And it also has a lot to say to you this morning if you know not Christ. You see, this Sabbath day, the people thought they could come on their own terms. But this morning... We need to see Christ for truly who he is and what we're commanded to do. And so to open up this passage, we're going to do it under these three headings. The people were shocked by his preaching. The people stumbled over his person. And the people were shunned by his power. Shocked by his preaching, stumbled over his person, shunned. By his power. When Jesus began to speak, the people who were there and the people who heard, we read off, were astonished. That word means, as it were, to be seized with panic, to be struck with terror, to be to be stricken with startling and sudden alarm. When they heard Jesus, they were filled with what we looked at last Sunday morning, fear. They immediately began to speak among themselves. They began to speak about Christ and the various different aspects and the ministry that amazed them, that made them to be fearful and made them to look and be astonished. They were astonished at his words. When Jesus preached, he did so with grace and love. His words were filled with divine authority. He did not speak like the local rabbis would. They quoted other rabbis and other rabbis and had no sense of certainty in their words. Yet, when Christ spoke, he did so with divine authority and people knew what he was talking about. He left no doubt in their minds of his hearers that his words must either be accepted or rejected. He left his hearers no wiggle room. When the Pharisees heard what Jesus had to say, remember what they said in John seven forty six. 
Never a man spoke like this man. When the people of Nazareth on that Sabbath day hear the Lord Jesus Christ, indeed, they were astonished. But they were also astonished at his wisdom. When Jesus spoke, his words were filled with truth. The people heard him declare old truths in new ways. He would go into the Old Testament and bring forward and give them examples. He would teach them by parables. He would take his own disciples aside and fill them with wisdom. For the illustrations that he drew upon were common. The truth he preached was anything but common. And again, on that Sabbath day, these people of Nazareth are astonished at his wisdom. But they're also astonished at his works. The Lord's fame indeed had preceded him to Nazareth. They had heard about the miracles that he had performed. They could not believe that a young man from from their own hometown could do the miracles that were attributed to him. The people of Nazareth could not believe what they were hearing and who they were hearing it about. They heard what Jesus had to say and they were left with their mouths hanging wide open. And as it was on that Sabbath day, so it is today. The message of the gospel affects people in the same way. When you read the word of God, it causes us to be amazed as God's people. But it can also cause, as we've read there, that astonishment to fear the claims of the Bible. And what are they this morning? These are not Merv's claims. These are not things that are added on. No, these are from the very pages of Scripture. This morning I urge you, take heed. Romans 3, verses 10 through 20. Romans 3, verses 23, and Galatians 3, verse 22, tell us in no uncertain terms that all people are sinners. Psalm 9, verse 17, and Romans 2, through 8 and 9, tell us that all sinners are headed somewhere. And it's not to some fairy tale place in the sky. All sinners, if unrepentant, are headed to a place called hell. Acts 4, 12, 1 John 2, 23, 1 John 5, 12 tells us that there is only one way to be saved from sin and its penalty. One way. Not many ways, but one John 3.18, John 3.36 tells us that all other religions that are not of Christ in the world are false religions and that they lead people to hell. John 14.6 and John 10.9 tells us the only way The only way for anyone to be saved is for them to place their faith in Christ. That is the amazement. Those amazing claims in these days cause people to react in anger. Take this message to the streets this morning and what will happen? Tell people that they are sinners. Tell people that without Christ and living a life unto themselves will lead to a place called hell. And what will you get? You'll get what Christ got. Anger, 
annoyance, disappointment. This morning, what do you hear? What do you think when you hear the claims of the gospel? Do you rejoice in its truth? Do you sit there as a child of God rejoicing this morning? Do you rejoice in knowing that Christ has paid it all? All to him I owe. Believer, this morning, we walk through dark days, difficult days. Yet remember your Savior. Remember the one who bled and who died on your behalf. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the truth of the gospel, knowing that it has saved your soul. This is not your home. Christ tells us that he has went and or he is preparing a place for us. Heaven and home. Or this morning, do you hear that gospel message and you reject it? This morning, do you have, as it were, your fingers in your ears? Yes, you may not physically have them because your parents would slap your hand and get them out of there. But are you sitting there with your fingers in your ears? Are you rejecting its message, knowing or thinking that you know a better way? Proverbs 16, 25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I do not know how you stand before a holy God this morning, even you little ones. And you've heard this message time and time again. This morning, do not reject it. Do not reject its message thinking that you know better. The Bible tells us that you think you know, but its way is death. And so secondly, this morning, these people stumbled over his person. As the people of Nazareth heard the message Jesus was preaching, they rejected it. It wasn't a simple shrug of the shoulders. It was gritted teeth. Why? Because they thought they knew everything there was to know about him. He had grown up among them. He was one of their own. They had seen where Christ had played and there he was as a child. They knew his family. And they thought they knew him. They knew that he had never been to any divinity schools. He'd never done any online courses. He'd never walked through a seminary at all. They knew that he had no formal training. They knew everything that they thought there was to know about Jesus. Or so they thought. To them, Jesus was just another boy from Nazareth. He didn't deserve their respect. They saw him, as it were, as a common man. Why can we say that with assurance? Look what they called him. They knew his very occupation. They called him the carpenter. A carpenter in those days did not always build fancy houses and show off their craftsmanship as even days that we have. No, remember the days that Christ lived in. Mud huts, simple dwellings. Typically, these people would build ox yokes. They would build wooden plows. 
Sometimes they would build things like tables and chairs and beds and some ornate bowls and cups. Carpenter referred to a common man. Perhaps even the people in those days when they looked around their own homes had things that Christ had made with his own hands and had built for them. And they saw him and his work as this this common affair. They looked at him and said, Look, you are no better than me, and we are. Why should we ever listen to you? We're told that they were offended at him. They took offense at him. That word offense is that idea of of stumbling or to be repelled at the point of abandonment. And because these people could not explain Jesus, what did they do? They refused to listen to him. They couldn't see past the carpenter and the common man, and so they refused to receive the theology from a a common carpenter. These people did what anyone does. They ridiculed. They mocked. They resorted to, as it were, a sly dig with a jab. Look at what they called him. The son of Mary. You may read that and wonder, why is that so important? That was never done in those days. A meal was always referenced as the son of his father. Even if his father was dead and gone, that son would still be called the son of, name the father. But here, these people, as it were, go to the lowest of the low And they give Christ a dig, a verbal dig. To call a boy the son of his mother was to imply that his mother had played the harlot. Something that was not done in those societies to the meal as he was approached. And these people were calling the very birth of Christ into question. The people of that day rejected the notion that Jesus was born of any supernatural means through the virgin's womb. If you want to know more and hear more, I commend you last Sunday night's sermon here when we looked at that virgin birth. Pastor Steve opened up that passage in ways that I had never even thought of. What a miracle. What a wonder. And yet, all done By God. But this wasn't the only time that they questioned his birth. If you read John 8 41 or John 9 29, in both of those times they call into question the virgin birth and they mock and they ridicule. And so, because they couldn't explain Jesus, they rejected his words, they rejected his wisdom, and they rejected his works with contempt. And ridicule. Look back at verse 2. Where did this man get these things? These people could not accept what they couldn't explain. But surely that state of mind that was there in Nazareth is still a state of mind as we look in our world today. People reject what they cannot explain. And when it comes to Jesus and religion, there's much that cannot be explained to people's satisfaction. There are many things that even as believers we will not know until glory. The secret things indeed do belong to God. But even this season that we're coming into, people have absolutely no trouble with a manger scene. They can accept that that little baby, that little one lying in a manger, and you know the scene that's set. There'll be donkeys and stars and people looking on. 
But when you tell people that that little baby lying there in that manger was born of a virgin and that he is God in the flesh, they cannot handle it. People even seem to have little trouble with Jesus going about place to place preaching his message of peace, his message of love, and his, his message of acceptance like some sort of philosopher. But when you tell them that he is the only Savior of the world, and that by rejecting him, it will lead them to hell, they cannot handle it. People have no problem at Easter. They have no problem with Jesus hanging on a cross. But when you tell them that he rose after, that he had died and he rose, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he lives today to see of those who are perishing in their sins, again, they cannot handle those things. This morning, if your concept of who Jesus is stops with a baby in a manger or a dead man on a cross, or you're missing the whole point. Jesus Christ is the very Son of a living God. You must understand that He died for your sins on the cross, and indeed He rose again. We must come to a place where we turn from our sins and we run to that cross and we believe in Christ for our salvation. Or this morning we have no hope. There's much in the Bible and the gospel that I do not understand. I can't figure out why he ever loved me. I can't figure out why he would ever care where I'm going to spend eternity. I cannot understand how or the way he saved me from my sins, but I know that he did so. There are many questions that don't stop us from believing. But what about you this morning? What hinders you from believing on Christ? Here are some absolute truths, again, from the Word of God. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is God and the flesh. Isaiah 7, 14 and Luke 1 tells us that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us that Christ lived a sinless life. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that Christ died for our sins on a cross on a hill called Calvary. Matthew 28 tells us that Jesus Christ rose from the dead three days later. Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ ascended back into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that Jesus Christ indeed is coming back to this world to receive his people unto himself. Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And John 14 verse 6 tells us that he is the only way. He is the life and he is the truth. And apart from him, there is no hope, there is no salvation, and there is no heaven. This morning I ask you, do you believe those things? Do you believe that apart from Christ we are a lost people? This morning... Don't allow anything to hinder you from believing these things. Don't allow that which you do not understand to cause you to stumble. This morning I urge you, run. Run. Run to him. Run to the only hope.
and the only salvation. And then thirdly this morning, the people were shunned by his power. The people rejected Jesus. And they rejected his message. His response to their unbelief, you can find it there in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his, in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. The people of Nazareth, like people everywhere, took for granted what they had and wanted what they didn't have. They looked at Jesus and saw one of their own. And they treated him as a common man. As I read the commentators, it said that preachers who grow up in a church experience this problem all the time. The people in church know you. They've watched you grow up. They have seen you succeed and they have watched you fail. And then the commentator goes on to say, but preach on. It's oh so true. Tonight we have the privilege of Pastor Briggs being amongst us. Today, 20 years ago, he preached his last sermon in Macrofelt, where I was. And I remember sitting in the front row, angry, disappointed, frustrated, couldn't understand why he had to go or why he was leaving. But yet he left. And then people started to look around for another pastor and teacher. And as I grew up in the church, I had opportunity. And it's so, so true. I was always called Little Mervyn. He may even say it tonight. But it's true. At times, growing up in a church can be the hardest thing. People know us. And yet they should know us. We can take that as a negative, but actually it's a positive. As a church and God's people, we should know one another. We should know when we succeed. We should know when we fail. And we should know one another enough to encourage, but also a time to sharpen one another. Verse 5 tells us, that because of their unbelief, Jesus was unable to perform many miracles there. Only a few sick people were healed. And before we go any further, listen well. Their unbelief did not hinder Jesus' power. Jesus was and is absolutely sovereign in all things. He could have done anything there that he wanted to do. He possessed the power. But he refused to. Because of the blatant unbelief of the people. Jesus' hands were not tied. There were a few people who came to him in faith and those people received help. How do we know that? Because we've studied the first five chapters of Mark. Those who came to faith and fell at his feet. Jesus was healing and looking after. There is a word here for the health and the wealth cried. There is a word here for those who promote the cult of prosperity. People who have embraced the prosperity cult doctrine believe that, only, that God only responds to our faith. In other words, if you have enough faith, you will be healed. If you have enough faith, you will have plenty of money. If you have enough faith, you will have endless health, wealth, and blessing. Heretics. This way of thinking holds our great and our glorious God captive to the will of man. God is not bound by us. We serve. A sovereign God. A God who does what he pleases, when he pleases, to whom he pleases. 
Our faith or the lack thereof does not pose a problem for him. Young people, being a Christian is not easy. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's difficult. Not all of us this morning walked in here skipping and I hope no one did cartwheels, but you know what I'm saying. The Christian way is hard and difficult. And as we go further along our Christian walk, it's as if that hill gets steeper and steeper. You see, the world would tell us, well, if you want more, you have to have more faith. No, God is not held captive to the will of man. I follow a few Instagram people who show these health and wealth people at their, their lowest, as I'll politely call it. And they were urging, begging, in fact, even commanding people to not send in 10 20 $30. One man even said, send in your life savings and God will give you more. And his words were, where is your faith? Brothers and sisters, our faith is not in our money. Our faith is not in our cars or what we possess. I was reminded just yesterday by a faithful brother that these things will all burn. They will all burn. Young people, you may be making a list right now and being very expectant of next month of what you may get. I'm the big bad ogre at the front to tell you it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Do not put your faith in anything else except for God. You see, Jesus, in this case, refused to cast his pearls before the swine. They refused the message. They, they were astonished. They, they said, who is this guy? They, they called him a carpenter. They, they threw the dig off. Well, you're nothing but the son of Mary and probably laughed and mocked in his face. They took offense at him. Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks. They weren't designed to, to prove how powerful he was, but they were signs of the kingdom. They were to show his redemptive power and, and how it operates. His miracles were healing and restoring and delivering people in ways that revealed who he was by finding faith. Hebrews eleven six reminds us, now without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. God's best blessings are not the works of healings. They're not the works of multiplying loaves and of fishes. It's not of meeting your needs. The greatest work of God is his saving, sealing, and securing of lost souls. If you are saved and believing in Christ this morning, you have received God's greatest work. Praise the Lord. You are saved. You are sealed and you are secured this morning. Not in your wealth. Not in your possessions. No, you are saved and sealed and secured in the love of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If that doesn't draw us to our knees this week in thanksgiving, I'm really not sure what will. You see, when Jesus saw the very depth of their rejection, when He saw how much they took offense at Him, look what He says in verse 6. And He marveled, because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. 
Twice in all of Scripture it says that Jesus marveled. And both times it's over faith. In Luke 7, he marveled at the great faith of that centurion. But here he marvels at the lack of faith among his very own people. Jesus was amazed that these people had heard the truth, seen the truth. And now, as it were, they were turning a deaf ear and a blind eye to that truth. And as a result, he left, he left Nazareth. And there is no other accounts of Christ ever returning to that land. The great Dr. Ryle says this, and I quote, We, believers, can never be too much on our guard against unbelief. It is the oldest sin in the world. It began in the Garden of Eden when Eve listened to the devil's promise instead of believing God's word, you shall die. It is the most ruinous of all sins and its consequences. It brought death into the world. It kept Israel for 40 years out of Canaan. It is the sin that specially fills hell. He that believeth not shall be damned. He goes on to say, It is the most foolish and inconsistent of all sins. It makes a man refuse the plainest evidence, shuts his eyes against the clearest testimony, and yet believes lies. Worst of all, he goes on to say, It is the commonest sin in the world. Thousands are guilty of it on every side. In profession, they are Christians. They know nothing of pain and volatile, but in practice, they are really unbelievers. They do not implicitly believe the Bible and receive Christ as their Savior. This morning, is that you? Are you unbelieving of these things? It brought death to the world. Did God really say? It kept Israel for 40 years out of Cana because of their unbelief of how good God is. The Bible tells us, He that believeth not shall be damned. But believer... There is a warning for us too this morning, is there not? If we come to the house of the Lord expectantly prepared, we will be amazed at what God can do. However, if we come with that attitude of I've seen it all and heard it all before, what can we expect? Perhaps we sit there and as I wrote that, I was reminded that I too sit in those seats. I am a member just like you are. And the preacher preaches something. And it says, some have said it hits us like a two by four between the eyeballs. And we can either accept it or we can push against it. Who likes to be told that they are failing in an area? No one does. And yet each and every day we feel. We come to the church and the house of God and we expect the preacher, as it were, to preach it down and work it up. The fact is that a great worship service demands the participation of both the preacher and the congregation. A Puritan of old said it this way, There can be no preaching in the wrong atmosphere. The congregation is responsible for at least half of every sermon. In an atmosphere of expectancy, the least effort will catch fire. In an atmosphere of coldness or indifference, the most spirit-filled of sermons will fall flat. 
How is our heart this morning to these things? As I wrote those things, I had to confess. There are times when I walk through those doors and I'm not expectant. I don't come with a heart that, as it were, has been tilled up and ready. I'm not perfect. And if you think I am, come and talk to me after. All of us struggle with these things. We must come, brethren, both preacher and hearer alike, with a responsibility and an expectancy. We've come this morning to worship our great God. But how did we come? Did we come flying up the road last minute? Did we come through the doors, perhaps husband and wife bickering in the car before we got here? Perhaps our children annoyed us so much that perhaps we lashed out at them. Perhaps our brother and sister annoying us and we got riled. Maybe perhaps we came in here and we had sweet communion this morning. And we came in here with hearts indeed that were prepared and expectant. We need in these days, as it were, to be sitting on the very edges of our seats. Why? Because this is the word of God. This is God's word for God's people. A certain preacher was away preaching in Scotland. And a great Scottish preacher, Alexander White, said to him, Where were you preaching last Sunday evening? The brother replied, I was over at a certain church. And White asked, How was it? The preacher said, Cold. I find it very, very cold. White replied, Cold. I'd say that place is cold. I preached there two years ago and still haven't got the chill out of my bones. I pray that such a statement will never be made about this place. I pray that we will embrace the Savior. I pray that we will be a Bible-believing congregation, a church that adheres to the Word of God above anything else. Our door will soon be knocked, and in fact it has been knocked for the way that we preach and teach the Word of God. The world despises us. The world, in the last few weeks, has pushed against us has said all types of malice against what we preach. I wear this pen. And some joke, do I have a pen for every day of the week? No, I have two. I have one that I wear in Remembrance Sunday, and this one. Given to me by a dear brother, he urged me to do what it says. Preach Christ crucified. And nothing else. As long as I have breath in my body. And as long as you don't kick me through those doors. We need to preach and live a life that is pleasing to God. We need to be careful not to push God away. And think that we only do things by our own strength. Sometimes as Reformed Baptists, we've become a lot like the people of Nazareth. We are, we are so familiar with these things that the message of the Bible, even the very things that we read this morning of the crucifixion of Christ and his burial and even next week his resurrection, we are no longer moved by them. We're reminded of what Jesus did for us and we sit in those seats week after week and we say, perhaps not audible, but inside, so what? We talk about the cross and no one cares anymore. Shame on us. When we read the account in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John of our Lord's death, 
doesn't move us. The one who bled and died for you. Have we allowed our hearts to grow cold and callous toward the things of God? And I urge you this morning, I urge you what that old road writer said in the last, and that what I read earlier, in an atmosphere of expectancy, the least effort will catch fire. Brothers and sisters, in these days, we need to be on fire for our God. Why? Because he is our God. He is the one who upholds us by his righteous right hand. This morning, if you're here and you know nothing of Christ, I urge you to come to him today. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. We may not see tomorrow. I might not even wake up in the morning. I don't know, but God does. And so this morning I urge you, all of us, do not be like the people of Nazareth in that day. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The answer, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is worthy of all of our honor and all of our praise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray for the reminders indeed that we at times can be dull to these things. We at times, as it were, can go through the motions and, as it were, tick that box. Lord, we pray that in these days we would be on fire for you. Lord, ignite our hearts again. Even when we, when we struggle and when we wonder why, Lord, remind us of who you are. And what you have done for us, your people. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Lord, remind us of Christ in these days. Remind us of the work of Calvary. Remind us of the work of the resurrection and him now seated at the right hand making intercession. Lord, help us to see Christ. We pray this morning that 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 deafness and blindness would fall off many, that they too could see him and that they would have saving faith. Lord, encourage our hearts by these things. Revive our hearts. Even this afternoon may it be that we would give you much praise as we would go home and talk much of these things. And Lord, bring us back even tonight to hear more from your word. Go before us and keep us safe, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.